you thought today would be good for us just to kind of take a, a break? Yeah, we had, well, we did this coffee and conversation on Tuesday morning. We opened it up to you all, and we had about 24 people show up, and we had such great conversations surrounding the series. Tuesday morning, you did what? Coffee and conversation. At the church. At the office. Push that again. When are you going to do that? We're going to do that Sunday the 20th. That will be the next morning that we do that, right out here on the patio, 7.30 to 9.30. Okay. But basically, it's just opportunity for you to come and meet the leadership or talk with the leadership, or we ended up just discussing with each other. There was no hierarchy um, Tuesday morning, but there's been such great dialogue and such great questions coming out and, and such great revelations, honestly, from so many of you about this series. And so we thought instead of just doing another Sunday morning dialogue between you and I, that we would open it up to you all this morning and literally have some of you come on mic with your questions if you're brave enough, which hopefully that you are, um, to ask what are your thoughts thus far? What are you getting? What are you disturbed by? What are you encouraged by? What are you challenged by? And so that's what today is going to be. I, I sent out an email Friday, and I know all of you read it several times, but let me read it to you again. Over the past several weeks, we've explored some of the major tenets of Christianity. The character of God, the nature of humanity, the essence of what we mean by salvation, the definition of sin, and this past Sunday we began the conversation on the person of Jesus. Those are biggies. Uh, the only thing that we really haven't spoken to uh, expressly is the nature of Scripture. But those are the biggies. God, Jesus, humanity, salvation, sin, uh, and the Bible. Those six probably are the major tenets from my perspective of Christianity. So we've been looking at those uh, through the lens of progressive Christianity. And Again, progressive Christianity can be totally overplayed. Christianity has always been progressive in nature. It's always been evolving in nature. Now, some of us don't come from backgrounds that really delved into this idea of Christianity's progressiveness, but scarcely is anybody apart religiously of a denominational background uh, that was not at one point pushing and breaking away from the norm on a particular issue. That's just always the nature of Christianity. But um, we wanted to open it up for questions. So are you going to like, there's microphones down mm -hmm. here. There's microphones down there. Be thinking. I'll, I'll give you one that came to me this week that I thought was really good. I'll give you one just as an example. Um, Elka Hoffman wrote, and I say her name. I don't think she would mind. This is a really good question. Unfortunately, Tara and I will not be there this Sunday. Hmm? They're on the lake. <laughs> However, I do have a couple of questions to ask. With the definition of progressive Christianity that we're discussing, how does this differ from humanism? That's a good question, actually. How does this differ from humanism? Perhaps a deeper understanding on the difference between the two would be helpful, especially for someone like myself who comes from an atheistic, humanistic background before becoming a, a Christian. Blessings and shalom, Elka. Um, my response to her, um, great and important question. The more theistic I become, the more I believe in a creator, in God. Interestingly, the more theistic I become, the more humanistic I become. That's the point of Christianity's central idea. Christianity's central idea is God becoming a human. Instead of God forcing us from the beginning 
to become gods, God became a human. That's Christianity's central idea, incarnation, in flesh. God created Adam. Think about this. God created Adam, looked at Adam, and one day said, this isn't good. What was not good, God said, was that Adam was alone. Now the question begs, what do you mean alone? Adam is with God. But God described a human being with just God as alone. And God did not rectify that by creating in Adam a greater capacity to mine that esoteric, invisible, divine spirit. He didn't lift Adam up into the heavens. Instead, you remember how God resolved the aloneness of Adam? He did not make Adam a god. He created another what? Human. And when the two humans looked at one another, God backed up and said, now that, that's not just good, that's very good. I think the majority of divinity that I experience in this life is not this direct contact with the invisible as much as it's the incarnate reality of God in the people around me. And isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when the whole thing summates and we get to the end and all of us have been arguing on who was closer to God and who had the best revelation of God and who had the best doctrine and we get to the end and Jesus looks at us and says, I was hungry and you fed me. And we didn't get this point and we say, when did we see you hungry? And Jesus said, as much as you took care of those around you, you were taking care of me. And then you've got 1 John. How do we say we love God whom we haven't seen if we don't love those whom we do see? And, and then even us within Christianity, we call this spirit-filled group of people that believe that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. We believe we are called the body of Christ. So humanism for me without God is, is a very... Uh, sad idea but the more theistic I become the more hu human or humanity um, is elevated in my mind last thing that I said to her here um, hmm, I'm pretty good with theology I'm really bad with my phone and technology true story but <clears throat> true story yes um, I, I do think that Christianity is very humanistic because it centers in this activity of God becoming a human. But I think the difference between us and radical non-theistic humanism is we are a humanism with a deep sense of gratitude to a creator. Right. So that's the kind of question that we're looking for. That also points that back, though, to your idea of prayer and what we even talked about earlier, that so much of us grew up with prayer as this crying out to God for God to then step in and intervene and fix something, and yet... We believe right now that when we say, we pray simply to find solidarity with God's heart, to say, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so joining God's grief over something, joining God's heart in something, that's what happens during the literal prayer. But then the work begins when we say amen, because God's right. put a lot of responsibility on us to yep. be the hands and feet. Yep. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, he said, and he was talking about their activity. He said, and you helping together with God in prayer. That's a great line. Prayer being that place where you literally come into the flow, the nature of God, and you helping together with God in prayer. So prayer for me has become less about cajoling God or leveraging God 
Um, we literally used to believe that we would remind God of mm -hmm. things. We use phrases like we're going to hold God accountable to his word. Come on now, think about that. We really got to walk into God's office and say, listen, buddy, you're letting down on the job. And when we walk out, God's like, whew, man, I was. I, 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 um, I kind of lost my way there a little bit, but thank you for the reminder. There's nothing about that that makes sense. But anyway, um, so out of the last few weeks, you got a question? Because probably the question on your mind is on the minds of a lot of other folks. So let's take a break. We'll pick up with Jesus again next week. Let's talk a little bit amongst ourselves. Any questions in the room? Who wants to be the froggy? Or thought. First? You don't have to. You could just talk about what you've gotten. Yeah, you, it doesn't even have to be a question. But don't preach long. So, oh, so, hey, Karen. Hey, Good Stan. How are you? Um, so when we pray to God and we, I do ask for things. So, sure. Um, should we not ask for things? I mean, no. is it completely up to us to fix whatever we're praying for? It seems like it's a waste of time to pray to ask for help for something if he's putting it back on us to fix it if we can't fix it ourselves. I don't think God's putting it on us, and I don't think we're putting it on God. I think prayer is a reminder of mutuality, and that's a really good point. It doesn't need to be an either-or. Of course we ask. We ask, we seek, we knock. We just remember our mutual part in that. You know, I don't doubt that he can come walking on water, I do believe he expects me to paddle as hard as I can. And I think, uh, I cannot say that I have never seen God walk on water because there are, as Beekner says, these interruptive moments where certain uncertain things happen. But I think to become dormant and wait on those things is really wrong. I think, I think if he ever does walk on water, it's when we've been paddling as hard as we can. Often, as I've waited on him to walk on water, my paddling has got me to shore, and I don't feel like that's humanism. I feel like that was the gift of God in me, that I accessed the power that he had already given me. So much of what we need God to do is within human capacity to remedy. Now, why would God continually be entitling us and spoiling us by fixing everything when he has given us the great dignity of free will and given us the power to take dominion over this world and do right things? So, it's a good point. I don't think it's either or. I just think prayer should be a reminder of mutuality. And I think we lean so long toward that side of God doing it all that we need to really refocus and say, where's our part in this? Where do we join God? You know, tooth decay is a disease. But, I, you know, I'm not going to sit around waiting on God to heal my disease. I'm going to brush my teeth. And I think there are a lot of things that we can do that we're supposed to do. So, great question. Uh, I, I, I tell the story all the time about the guy at the wishing well there at Walcott State Park. He was standing there at the wishing well throwing silver dollars into the wishing well. And us kids were watching him, and I remember he looked over at us. He used an expletive that I won't use, but he had a whole roll of silver dollars, and he was throwing them in the, he would pray, throw them into this well where it was a wishing well there uh, outside of town that all of us knew kind of famously. And he looked over at us. We were about 12 years old. Uh, and we were just staring. We were thinking how we could dive in and get those silver dollars. He looked over and he said, I, uh, I'll clean it up a little bit, but he said, I really believe this stuff. And I'll never forget how that impacted me. If you're throwing pennies into the well, you're throwing silver dollars into the well, you really believe it. And at some point, I thought about my own sense of prayer what part of prayer captures the pennies and what part of prayer captures the silver dollars for me? 
And uh, that's where I began thinking about all this. And so, anyway, yes. Um, so I have a question regarding humanism and Christianity because most of my friends, I would say, are atheists and humanists, and they think that they're responsible for creating a utopia on this planet by being responsible for the Earth and responsible for each other. And I feel like that's a very good cause. And I have scientist friends who are like trying to save the world, basically. And I'm wondering, because like Adam and Eve were supposed to take care of the garden, and we were supposed to like name the animals and such. Like, what is the responsibility of a Christian to create the world that we're supposed to live in? Is it something that we really just give our faith to God, and we just like hope that He works things out, and He's divine so we don't really know what he's up to or is that something we actually have a responsibility to like care about and try to help as a church yeah even the most conservative church uh, from the catholic church to the evangelical church is beginning to become aware that this world of ours needs to be stewarded more effectively than we have stewarded it um it needs to be cared for it needs to be um you know it let me back up and say Coming from my background, I never, and many of you feel the same way, coming from our background, we never felt the deep sense of responsibility to care for an earth or an ozone. Um, we never felt that deep responsibility. You remember why? Because we were leaving here very quickly. And when we reflected back in history, we believed history only went 6,000 years that way. And we really only believed that history was going to go about another hundred years or less this way. Does anybody remember that? Is that the way? Look, how many honestly grew up with a young earth and a soon-to-be end-of-earth theology? See, that, that's pervasive in Christianity. And, and if that is the case, you know, there's really no responsibility to take care of the place. Now, if all of a sudden, through scientific and theological reflection, the 6,000-year retrospective actually becomes a 13.7-billion-year retrospective. And you can see God in that 13.7 billion years. And all of a sudden, you begin to read the scriptural narrative again. Even Vatican II and the Catholic Church, very conservative, begin to shift on this in the late 50s, early 60s, that, you know, if, if science is indicating this world is 13.7 billion years old, um, how do we reconcile that with Scripture? And, and once we begin to read Scripture more poetically there in the creative creation narrative, we realize that our early folks with uh, very non-scientific language intuited that creation was a long process, day after day. Even the Hebrew word that's translated day could be translated age. There was this sense with pre-scientific language that, that this thing happened over a long, long process. And even evolution. I mean, think about the, the uh, creation narrative that wasn't just ours but many other Semitic cultures shared the same narrative that humanity rose up out of the dust of the earth. The image of God was so irrepressible in the substance of creation that we came up out of the dust. Out of the primordial ooze, the irrepressible image of God just continued to grow and foment until finally there is humanity. You know, our species, Homo sapiens sapien, is what, 20 to 25,000 years old? I mean, think about it. If the Lord's not coming in the next 100 years the way many of us supposed, and what God does, none of us knows, but if we continue, 
we're not even going to be the same species 200,000 years from now. Oh, have you thought about that? We're not even going to be the same species. We're going to be even closer to the image of God that is irrepressibly being born by the universe and creation. And, and maybe that comes near to capturing what Paul was talking about when he said we're being shaped into the image of his firstborn son, that majestic first and last human, Jesus. Bottom line is, if we replace 6,000 years with 13.7 billion and we replace the idea of this cataclysmic, interruptive act of God to change the world, then all of a sudden we see that the long process of creation wasn't the magical waving of a wand and the fix of creation is not going to be this one great conflagration where there's this interruptive act and there's a new heaven and new earth. Maybe the new heaven and new earth is going to happen the same way that creation has happened and that is over time little by little as the kingdom of God comes to bear. If that's the case we've got about two million more years with this present planet on the pace that we're on it could be shortened to as little as 800,000 years. You say well that doesn't matter to me I'm not going to live there. Well that's a problem isn't it? Because we're supposed to believe in the communion of saints and the democracy of the ages. We're supposed to believe that future generations matter as much as a present generation. The unborn has a democratic voice in all of this too. We're supposed to care for that. There's a kingdom of God that the Christian church has been tapping into that's called the communion of saints. All saints that have ever lived and will ever live gathered at the altar of God. We've got to care and we've got to steward that. You say, are you saying, Stan, that there's not going to be an interruptive conflagration where God comes and makes everything new? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's one plausible way God could do it. Extrapolating from what I know about the past, it feels to me more plausible that it's not going to be that cataclysmic interruptive moment, that it's going to be a long, gradual process. And if it's a long, gradual process, then we need to take dominion and we need to steward not only our lives, but we need to steward this gift called creation. And maybe we'll find another place out there habitable. And by the time those generations run out of this sun, they'll take the kingdom of God elsewhere. Is that crazy? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but that's the imaginative thinking that is the good work of theology. From glory to glory, we're thinking about all of these things. And we have the latitude to think about these things with Christ at the center. Hey, bud. Hey, um, so I'm really compelled by the narrative that you've given of sin over the past couple weeks, just giving more light to the idea of human separating. But like I've been a, you know, dirty, nasty sinner my whole life. And it's hard for me to combat that narrative and also to see certain things in a certain context. And so I've been thinking a lot about, um, passages in the Old Testament where we see sort of the destructive nature of God, like the flood mm -hmm. um, and Gibeah and Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's, it's complicating that view that you've been giving me like of sin. And so I'm curious how you then read those passages of scripture yeah, about that's a great question. What do we do with those questions? Because there are some you know, we all have felt like by the time we get to the New Testament and, G and see Jesus that somehow God I don't know, somebody got to God and God got saved and became a Christian and <laughs> literally turned over a new leaf. That's the way you feel when you're reading the Hebrew Scriptures into the... And, um, but I, I mentioned this probably a year ago 
and since there are so many new folk, I think, I think it, it bears reflection again. Um, what do we do with a text like Numbers 34? Numbers 34, God says to his people, I mean, think about jihad, extreme jihad. God says to God's people, Numbers 34, go kill all the Amalekites. People are like, okay, they go, they kill the Amalekites, they come back, God says, how did it go? They say, killed them all. God said, no, you didn't. They said, well, we had a, a fit of compassion and we couldn't bring ourselves to kill the old people and the children. God says through Moses, I told you to kill them all. Now go back and get the job done. And this is the Yahweh that is manifest in the person of Jesus who puts a child on his lap and says, suffer the children to come to me and it would be better for you to jump off in the ocean than hurt one of these little ones. That's what we got to reconcile, right? How do you reconcile those two? So the children of Israel go and they're going to kill everybody. God stops them and says, wait a minute. And they say, whew. And God says, don't kill them all. And they're like, thank God. And God says, the young girls who are virgins keep for your own stash. And we have to then reconcile that that this is the one manifest that Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do you do that? Well, Greg Boyd, my friend, great Christian scholar, one of the top 20 Christian scholars um, literally in the world right now, popular scholars, Greg pointed out something to me that I had never thought of before. Greg said that trying to interpret those texts through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ, which is what Christianity does, Greg said, I was always bothered by the fact that Jesus even pointed to the Hebrew Scriptures, and he did not, he did not put them down. Jesus pointed back to the Hebrew Scriptures, and he said, these Scriptures, that, that story in Numbers 34, uh, the, the Noah story with all the babies floating on the water, isn't it amazing how we sanitize stories in Scripture? I mean, the Noah motif is the number one biblical motif that we use in our nurseries. And the real story is not giraffes and hippopotamus sticking their heads out of the ark. The real story is all the babies died. And that's our, that's our nursery motif. Wow, we're not thinking. How do you reconcile Jesus looked back at those stories, and Jesus looked at the Pharisees, and he said, these stories should have led you to me. Well, how in the world would those stories lead to Jesus? Jesus said, for these scriptures, listen to this, these scriptures testify of me. They show you me. Now, how does that story show you Jesus? And Greg said something to me. I don't know when I've had a stronger aha moment. But Greg said, I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled until I finally realized that at the center of the Jesus story is the fact that Jesus is scapegoat. Jesus is sin bearer. Now think about it. Drew, he's not... We were very big on the fact that Jesus didn't commit sin, right? All right. So Jesus is not sin committer. Jesus is sin bearer. 
What's that mean? When Jesus goes to the cross, which in smaller form is what every martyr does, whether it's Gandhi or King, they are bearing the sins of the people. They are taking on. King said, I will literally receive your blows and metabolize them in love and return them to you in redemption. That's filling up in your body the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus was not the sin committer. He was the sin bearer. So when we look on the cross, we see Jesus bearing all the sins of the world, not committing them. And the Hebrew Scriptures were a literary form of crucifixion for we took our hatred, our enmity, our revenge, our vitriol, our retribution, our racism, our genderism. We took all of our bad and literarily we imposed it upon God. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, you see a literary crucifixion where God is, be, God is bearing our sins, but God is not actually committing them. Because I can never fathom through the lens of Jesus that Jesus, that God would say, keep the little virgin girls for yourself instead of killing them. There's no reconciling that. But that's what you do with the scapegoat. He who knew no sin was made sin for us and bore our sin, and we not only put our sins on him, but the entire time he was committing no sin, the religious community was always telling the narrative of his life as though he were a sinner. And so now I can read the Hebrew Scriptures and say this is exactly what we do. We crucify those who come in the name of the Lord. Those who come with a higher call, we impose sin upon them, and ultimately they are the great souls in the universe, and Jesus was the central one who as scapegoat takes that atomic bomb and runs out into the wilderness so none of us are destroyed. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So now when I read those scriptures, I think that's exactly what we do. As Pascal and George Bernard Shaw later famously quoted, um, God made man in God's image and man has returned the favor. Those stories are stories that persist to this day and that is every nation, every people group, every person calling God theirs and imposing upon God their own causes, their own sin their own way of doing life. So that's a brilliant way. Greg right now, he just sent me the manuscript for a thousand-page book that he's writing on this subject and asked me to go through it. I'll do that in my spare time. Um, but brilliant. That's great. I want to get to a couple more questions, but that yeah. question in itself warrants a whole Sunday, talking about what is Scripture and what is the authority yeah. of Scripture, even more importantly. So maybe we'll come to that next week as a whole, yeah. but there's a couple more things we want to get to. Stan, is Jesus the only way to salvation, and that's, that's is, one, is there a literal heaven I, I and hell? I couldn't hear the um, first question. Is Jesus the only way to yeah, salvation, yeah. and is there a literal heaven and hell? Um, that's probably the central question of Christianity, not just in the modern era, but, but, um, but always, I suppose. Is Jesus the only way of salvation? There are three ways to look at any religion. One way is exclusivism. Exclusivism makes the statement that our religion is the only religion and anyone outside of that religion 
is bound for damnation. On the other end of the spectrum is pluralism. Pluralism says, this would be Baha'i, Unitarian Universalist, pluralism says that there are humans, there, there is God, those two are mutually attracted through the mutual attraction of the divine and the human. Uh, there is interaction. Those interactions are so profound that stories begin to be told and accumulate. And in every society, in every culture, those things happen. And through the accumulation of these stories and experiences of the divine, uh, religion begins to develop. And the pluralist says, how dare any one group of people based upon the whimsy of geography say their stories are better than somebody else's stories? And right now, if Oprah would hear, was here, she would say, amen. Y'all might not, but Oprah would. That's the pluralistic idea, that all religions somehow are equivalent and are the equal gift of God and the reason religions are different is because they get expressed sociologically through different cultural languages, norms, memes, stories, ideas. That's pluralism. Between exclusivism and pluralism is inclusivism. This would have been C.S. Lewis, George MacDonald, uh, the Tony Campolos of the world, the Brian McLarens. Inclusivism says, no, all religions aren't equal. Because it really is true, all religions aren't equal. I think extreme Islam is not equal with good Judaism. I think Westboro Baptist and God hates fag signs. I don't believe that is the equivalent of good Christianity. I don't think all religions are equal. I think some people's accumulative stories stink and do not represent God at all. So I don't buy pluralism, but inclusivism gives you the ability, gives you the ability to say we believe that this religious expression that we hold is the chief and ultimate articulation of God to humankind. But the inclusivist, generally, while they agree with the exclusivist that this is the ultimate message, they generally different, differ, as C.S. Lewis did, Philip Yancey, others, with the exclusivist, in saying, while we believe this is the ultimate expression of God, we do not believe it was for the purpose of exclusion. We, don't be, we do believe that God called Abram and said, I'm going to set up this nation. We don't believe that God set up that nation so they would be the only ones. We believe they were called to be blessed, that they might be a blessing. So the inclusivist holds to this is the chief and ultimate revelation of God, even superior to others. And the pluralist gets a little angry about that, but the inclusivist generally just looks at the exclusivist and says, we not only believe what you believe, but we believe that it is much better than that. That Jesus is the express image of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the arc of his mercy and effect is going to cut a much wider swath than what you ever supposed before. All right. If exclusivism is 10, let's give it the highest number. If exclusivism is 10 and numbers don't indicate quality, inclusivism is five, and pluralism is 10. I am an inclusivist. I believe in the majestic message of God through the person of Jesus Christ. But if I were going to lean, if I, was, if I, were, an, if I were leaning one way or another, I would not be, to use Enneagram language, I would not be an inclusivist with an exclusivist wing. 
I have, there's nothing in me that resonates with exclusivism. There's nothing in me that resonates with the chief story of the universe is that the majority of humans who've ever lived are going to be tortured forever. Nothing about that resonates with me. So I would be an inclusivist, and if I leaned anyway, pluralism would make more sense to me than exclusivism, but neither makes sense to me. What makes sense to me is the inclusivist message of Jesus. So is Jesus the way, the truth, and life? Yes. And when the kid in Pakistan who's never heard the name of Jesus jumps into the river to save his little sister and he drowns because he doesn't know how to swim, you know what that is? That's Jesus. Because greater love hath no man than this. Who has Jesus? The one who lives the life of Jesus or the one who has memorized doctrines about Jesus because they were born in the right part of the world. I know John 3.16 says, whoever believes. Well, 1 John 4 says, whoever loves is born of God. Take one verse from John. You take yours, I'll take mine. Whoever loves is born of God. <laughs> whoever loves is born of God. So when somebody steps into love, sacrificial love, when somebody senses that there is a creator to whom we should be grateful and we should live in a mutual sense of grateful love with one another, they are coming nearer the message of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't say, I am the doctrine, the truth, and the teaching. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. You know what that is? That's a truthful way of living. And when he gets to the end, he looks at us and says, that whole deal about sprinkling versus immersion, I want to settle that for you now. No, he looks at us and says, I was hungry and you fed me. That's why A.J. Levine, my Jewish friend, the great Jesus scholar who's going to be here, she has not come to the same position on Jesus as Messiah as many of you have. But she tells me all the time, she says, Stan, I understand the logic. It's not where I am. She is a good Jewish person. And she lives her life in the prisons, taking care of the poor and the marginalized. And she says, if Jesus is the guy you say he is, based upon what he said at judgment, I think I'm going to do pretty well. And if he is the one, she said, I'll be the first one to come over to Grace Point and I'll be your assistant pastor. That's an, ex that's an inclusivistic spirit, and I think that comes nearer the heart of Jesus in the gospel than exclusivism. So, one more? Yeah, it's back here, though. Hi, Stan. I'm Chris. I had emailed you a couple of weeks ago. I have spent 30 years of my life in complete fear and anxiety because I was told as a child I could never find God or be a part of God because of the way he created me. Well, after the last five years of intense study of the Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, I find what I have been told is a lie. Now, how did I find that? It's through Jesus and on my knees asking for his spirit to lead me, and he has. The only thing that has kept me from being able to be a witness and to do things for God is a lie that Satan planted in my mind. And Anna, that's why I wanted to address you, is if we go to Jesus, he covered our sins, just like you said. He is our sin bearer. And the biggest fear that we have is things that we think that we're not supposed to do because we've been told you can't be this, you can't be a part of that. Jesus himself wants us to be a witness to everyone. And he wants us to do his works. And I'm thankful that he loves me enough that he covered my sins. That's all I wanted to say.
Thank you, Chris. I'm glad you don't live in fear anymore. Um, DeMarco. Stan, if someone were to walk by off the street and just poke their head in here and hear these discussions here on how Chris has suffered for 30 years and talking about humanism versus um, Christianity and spirituality and of these scriptures that we dissect sometimes to tireless effort trying to understand, how do we explain to that person what is this all about? We sitting here know how life-giving this is, how gloriously uplifting and, and delicious, but how do we articulate to someone else that has not had what we found here, why they would want to come in here and that, That's interesting. Search. I, I seldom try to articulate what I found or what we have here. My approach with every person that, that I ever meet um, is to find out what level of spiritual inquiry they have and generally, instead of trying to find things in my life or in this church that could stir them, allure them, draw them, almost 100% of the time, if I listen to them long enough, the stories are already inside of them. And I, I, I don't point to what we're doing because what, we're, what might be a blessing to us may seem inane to other people. Anne Lamott said she walked into a church and sat there for six months, and they thought they were doing the good work of Jesus in her life. She said it sounded like they were talking about extraterrestrials. And that's the way a lot of people would feel if they walk in here. What I hope they would see is latitude and grace and a bunch of people doing their best to ask the right questions and be good to one another but I wouldn't try to provoke them and say, do you want to try this? I would do my best to look into their life and see what's already going on there. And when you really delve into somebody, which is what Jesus did. Jesus, Jesus was continually, instead of forcing people to his altar, he was continually coming to Zacchaeus's tree and pushing into his life and finding the stuff that's already happening there and parlaying that into spiritual work with them. So... Yeah, I often think, DeMarco, man, if somebody walked in here, would they understand this or would it sound like we were talking about aliens? Maybe the latter, but I hope they would see something provocative and good and honest. This kind of ministry, what we did today, just these few questions, this is the kind of stuff that I think Jesus was radically comfortable with. And I think it's why religious institutions were radically uncomfortable with him. I think this is exactly what Jesus did. And it so upset the apple cart and the norm that the religious institution that had everything boxed and codified and, you know, just laid out so perfectly, Jesus really interrupted that in a painful way for them. Jesus seldom walked into the temple and said, I'm going to do ministry today, Isaiah said. He did that once or twice. The bulk of his time was spent not quoting verses from the Bible, but he would lift stories from culture and farming and construction. and He would come into people's very broken, hurting lives, and he would find stories that were not embedded in the text of Scripture, but were embedded in the text of their life, and Jesus would minister there. And this is the good work of a church. This is why we are called Israel which means to wrestle with God. And if you have a faith that never demands any wrestling, if your faith can perfectly reconcile a perfect God 
and jihad, if your faith can perfectly reconcile limp little bodies and arms pulled from Syrian waters and you feel no need to wrestle, um, I would really press back and say your faith needs examined. This is a wrestling, and it is a good wrestling. And thank God for a safe place to do all of our wrestling. Yeah. I think also what DeMarco points at is all of us long to be able to articulate this better um, because we see people and we hear people or we meet people outside of these doors who need this very life-giving thing. And so hopefully with this series specifically, we're trying to give you better ways to articulate what all of this means. And it may not have come into full focus for you yet, um, but that's what we're going towards. And we even talked about putting together position papers on all of these things, but even maybe less than that, just some one-liners basically mm -hmm. that what our stances on God or our beliefs are about God and Jesus and humanity, salvation, inclusivism, all these things so that you all, not only can we go out and invite people in, but we want you all, we want to be a people that's not just trying to grow a church. I mean, that would be a beautiful thing to grow this church because we believe in this place, but more importantly, to create better lives for people out there. Because I think all of us sit here today, hopefully being, uh, we've been enriched by this place and enriched by this experience and we all want to grow together, but we've got to get out there there's tons more people. That's why all these people are watching online and creating house churches and whatnot, because we're articulating something here humbly, but articulating something different and something fresh, and that's very exciting. Uh, ministers everywhere are thinking this stuff. The pew is thinking this stuff. We just have to be honest enough. That's the way the church has always reformed itself when it has had the honesty and the courage to press into the stuff that we're already thinking. This is not new. This is grinding in the soul of millions and millions and millions of Christians. Uh, 30 seconds, what would I say to somebody? What is the essence of why we're here? Life is more than organic. I believe life is deeply spiritual, and I believe the reason life is deeply spiritual is because life is gift, and spirituality and meaning was infused into life by the gift of a creator. I believe there is a creator, and I do not believe that Creator is distant from us, but I believe that Creator is involved and interactive with humanity and is stimulating this more than organic life. And I personally believe that that Creator came in the person of Jesus Christ radically, movingly, and powerfully. And we are called to the life of Jesus to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And if you work on that, you won't come back with a second question. That'll take a lifetime to catch up to just that. And that's the good stuff that will put us in good standing with a God who's going to say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. That's the essence, I think, of this whole deal. Everything else, secondary and tertiary.